Today we're going to be talking about lessons for my heart from Israel's kings. And uh, this is a really good lesson for me because uh, it has lots of implications for how I should live when the Lord brings success into my life. Uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Saul and David and Solomon. And uh, there are good lessons to learn for uh, how these men responded to success that God gave them and uh, what the what the uh, patterns of sin they fell into, and then more importantly, how they responded to those. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Uh, God has a design for Israel. And uh, when you think about the Old Testament, you think about Israel and God using them to let other people, all the rest of the nations know him. Uh, the rest of the nations were to come to Israel and understand who God is from observing Israel. And one of the things that was very, very important in uh, Israel's history was that they didn't have a king. Uh, God's design for them was that he would be their king and that all of the nations would come near to Israel and they would see this nation functioning really, really well without a king. And that would cause Israel to be able to explain to the nations around them that's because our king is Yahweh. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. And what we'll do is we'll uh, look at several different uh, observations from, from this passage. And this is a passage where God is giving this to Israel. This is the second giving of the law. Israel is on the east side of the Jordan River, and they are getting ready to enter into the Promised Land. They have just gone through 40 years in the wilderness, and God gives them their law again. And part of what he does here is he addresses the fact that they will want a king. And uh, so God, his design for them is that he would be their king, but he knows that they will want their own king. And so he speaks to that. Starting in verse 14. When you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom Yahweh your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel." So this is God's design for how the king of, of Israel is to conduct himself. We're going to start by looking at God's provision for Israel. Uh, we're going to look at verse 14. God writes, uh, God says, When you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you, uh, the first thing that Israel needs to make sure they understand in all of this is that the land that they are possessing is the land that God gave them. They don't have anything that they have other than because God gave it to them. And when giving Israel his guideline for their kings, God wanted Israel to remember how it was that they got the promised land. You need to remember all the time that I gave it to you. And their possession of the promised land was only because the Lord had given it to them. It wasn't because of their own might. It wasn't because of their own abilities. Uh, God wants them to remember first and foremost, this is the land that I promised your forefathers and I am giving it to you. Um, so in the same way that God had the authority to give them the land, he also had the authority to regulate uh, the way in which they would rule over the land that he gave them. So uh, God has in mind that Israel understand God's provision to them. But then God also addresses the issue of pride in Israel. He says, and in verses 16 and 17, And you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. And God told them that I will be your king and Israel God knows that Israel will want to set a king over them just like everybody else. God had already told Israel that he would be their king. Just a little bit earlier in Deuteronomy 14, God says to Israel, You are a holy people 
to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so God's design for Israel was that he would be their king. Uh, he would give them a law, and he would give them protection from other nations, and he would give them peace, and they, he gave them everything they would need, and they would function really, really well. All the other nations would be different from them and full of strife and battles and wars, and Israel would live in peace, and they would live securely. That was God's design. And God's purpose in that was that all of the other nations would see the stark contrast um, in the way that Israel lived from the way that they lived. And that would be how he would put himself on display so that all the nations would come to know him through Israel. So God's design in, in the Old Testament is that the Gentiles would come to Israel and he would use their unique status as a nation without a king as one of the primary means of, of knowing him, and coming to understand him. But uh, Israel would say, no, I want a king so I can not be separate from all the other people, all the other nations, but I can be the same as all the other nations. God's design for Israel is that they would be separate and they would be distinct. And Israel's heart is that they would be the same as everybody else. And God knew that. He knew that in his providence, in his wisdom, his foreknowledge. He knew that. And so he also gives them provisions and prohibitions here. And we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. There are things that the king must not do. And this, again, is going to set Israel in opposition to all the other nations. Because all the nations around them, their kings were exalted. And God wants the kings of Israel to be common men like everybody else. Uh, he says in verses 16 and 17, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Uh, God wanted Israel to have a king whose confidence was in him, uh, not in their military might. And then he said he shall not multiply wives for himself. And that's because God wanted a king whose devotion to one wife would flow out of their devotion to one God. And that, again, would be very different and distinct from all the other nations around them. So God had, had stipulations for them and prohibitions for them as to what they could accumulate. And one of the things that they were not to accumulate was much silver and much gold. He shall not greatly increase silver and gold for himself. God wanted a king who would daily find his treasure in God himself, not in material wealth not in any material possessions. And uh, we need to preach that message to ourselves every day, right? That we find our joy, we find our, our richness, we find our treasure in God himself, not in uh, all of the things which we accumulate. So then God gives a prescription for Israel, and this is really, really good. This is wise. Uh, in verses 18 and 19, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. God's design for each and every king was that they would get out their pencil and their scroll and they would write the law themselves, the entire law. There's something like 324 um, commands that they must obey and 287 commands that they must not do, things they must not do. So they're writing out more than 600 instructions. And they are to set it at the side of their throne. So every single king has to write this out. And uh, they weren't to have a scribe do it, and one who was good at writing. They were to write it out themselves, all 613 of these laws. And he said, it shall be with him. A copy was to be placed by the side of his throne. And the reason why he would do that is so that he has immediate access to God's wisdom um, in all of his situations. That is, that he looks to God's word first for his wisdom when he's trying to navigate all of the things that are happening in his land. And again, God had promised them they would have peace, their borders would be safe if they would just obey him. So God is setting them up really, really well. But it's not enough just to simply write down the law. Uh, if we keep reading, it says, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. Uh, God wanted the king to be familiar on a day-by-day -day basis with his law. Not enough just to write it down. He needs to inform himself of God's design. And uh, notice how often he's to do this. He's to do this all the days of his life. He's not to go and have seasons where he's not reading the word. And God's law is to be right there for him. And we see why God does that. It's that he may fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. So there we have it again. The fear of God is what comes into view when we're reading his law. 
and the result is that his heart may not be lifted above his countrymen, and he may not turn aside from the commandments. So continual reading of God's word keeps us humble, and it keeps us um, from elevating ourselves above other people. Humble in our dealings with our neighbors, and resolve to obey what we're reading. And then God gives a promise at the very end. This is really great. He says, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. God is speaking about perpetuity here. He wants Israel to know that he will bless them again and again and again in an ongoing way. And so his design is that Israel would forever be a light to the dark nations around them. That was what he, he had for them. So focusing on the prohibitions here, God says you, you can't multiply horses for yourself, you can't multiply wives for yourself, and you're not to greatly increase gold and silver for yourself. We want to stress that because we're going to keep that in mind and observe that as we look at the lives of these three kings. And Israel's reward in all of this is the privilege of being a testimony to the nations around them. And so uh, that is God's design. That is God's design for Israel. And we're going to see how it goes right out of the gate with Saul. And then we're going to go to David. And then we're going to go to Solomon. So uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to move forward to uh, Saul. And so we want to go to the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to take a look at Saul. And if you you have a, a you step back and you try to get a view of First and Second Samuel, First Samuel is pretty much the story of Saul as a king. Second Samuel begins with David as a king. And so we're going to look at chapter eleven. We're going to look at verses one and four, and uh, six and seven. And the context here is that Saul has just been made king. I think he was made king back in chapter 9. And uh, the other nations are oppressing Israel because they were disobedient. We just had the period of the judges, and Israel, uh, the, the, the summary for the period of the judges was, was what? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So every man is doing what, what he thinks is right, and Israel is going downhill fast. And so God is, is chasing Israel again and again by bringing other nations into them. And one of the nations that did that was the Ammonites. And uh, what they would do is they would lay siege against Israel, and they would starve Israel out, and they would eat their food, and they would take their crops and all of those things. So let's look at uh, chapter 11, verses 1 and 4. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. So there's a nice big city, and the Ammonites come and they lay siege on this city. Now we're going to drop down to verse 4. Uh, the next couple of verses describe how it was that, that uh, Ammon was oppressing Israel. And in verse 4 we read, Then the messenger came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the, the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. So we, we know that Israel is weeping because they are being chastened by the Lord. Another nation has come in and has laid siege to them. So look at verses 6 and 7, and we'll see where God is endowing Saul with great blessing uh, to be used for his purposes. The Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out of, after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of Yahweh fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. So we see Saul here. Saul is stepping forward. Uh, the Lord has given him uh, great ability. So we'll drop down to verse 11. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So this is the Lord giving a special dispensation to Israel to uh, defeat their enemies. Now let's make some observations of this. This is, is really important for us. Um, Israel is very vulnerable. Nations come in and lay siege to them, and they do it repeatedly. They do it all the time. But the Spirit of God comes upon Saul in verse 6. And this is a, a temporary resonance of the Holy Spirit. This is not the indwelling, permanently indwelling Holy Spirit that we know at regeneration. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would descend upon a man temporarily for uh, the Lord's purposes to enable him to do what uh, the Lord had for him to do. And the dread of the Lord fell on the people because of Saul's willingness to stand up to Israel's oppressors. So Saul is willing to step forward. And Saul possesses some level of 
military strategy and wisdom. If you look at verse 11, Saul is, is driving the bus here. He is guiding his people. Uh, he is telling them what to do, and he gave them great success. So here Saul is. He's well positioned to serve as Israel's king. The Holy Spirit is upon him. He has the respect and the following of the people. And uh, he, is, he is positioned very, very well. So that's, um, that's the start. Saul is starting off very, very well. What we're going to look at here is uh, the warning that God gives. Um, but we're going to make a, a few observations about the context here. Um, 400 years earlier, the Lord had released Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Israel was journeying to the Promised Land. And Amalek, there was a king named Amalek, and uh, he had set himself against Israel. And uh, he would not permit Israel to go through his land. Israel had to go around their land. And it was difficult for them to get to the Promised Land because Amalek would not let them pass through his land. And now the Lord is about to exercise his vengeance on Amalek. All these centuries later, he waited about 400 years to do this. So Saul gives, uh, the Lord gives an instruction to Saul, and he says in, in chapter 15, verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So go in there and destroy every single thing. Destroy everything that belongs to Amalek. Don't spare anything. Don't spare the men. Don't spare the women. Don't spare the children. Uh, kill all the animals. Kill every single thing. And this helps us understand God's character when God says, Vengeance is mine. He means vengeance is mine. So Saul had the privilege of being used as an instrument in the Lord's hand as the Lord executes his vengeance on Amalek. But we see a compromise that takes place in chapter 15, uh, in verses 7 through 9. But it's interesting because Saul is obedient to some degree. But we'll, as we read, we'll see where it is that he wanders and he compromises. So starting in verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But... Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So Saul was obedient in all of the things that were worthless, and he was absolutely disobedient for the things that were prized. And so the Lord gave Saul great success, but Saul kept the best of the spoils for himself. He kept the king, Agag. He kept the best of the sheep, the oxen and the lambs. He kept everything that was good. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to take a look at what the heart issue is with Saul. And it's pride. Look at verse 9. Saul was more than happy to destroy everything that was despised and worthless, but he was not willing to destroy everything utterly. And so on the heels of great success, they, they accomplished a victory. Um, Saul was proud because he assigned to himself uh, what it was that he would do. And he set his thoughts and his design for what he would do above God's instructions to him. So we see pride starting to raise its head in Saul right when God gives him success. And uh, that's something that's helpful for us to remember because God is uh, kind to us and good to us. And uh, that's a lesson for us when God brings success into our lives. Uh, the right thing is to be humble and to recognize that all of that came from God's hand. But one of the most important things we can look at here is how Saul responds to his sin. And this is very, very telling, and it's very instructive to us. So we'll look at this, starting in verses uh, 20 and going through verse 30. Now I'll, I'll jump around a little bit. Uh, but in verse 20, uh, Samuel comes, and he, he's, he's with Saul. And Samuel knows the instructions that God gave to Israel, that God gave to Saul. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choice of the things devoted to destruction, to the command of Yahweh and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. So we see a little bit of blame shifting and we see a fear of man. Verse 25. 
Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Saul recognized what it is that he did, but he is, he is um, blame shifting and he is making excuses. And what we're looking at here is a heart issue. Um, he asserted the rightness of his own thinking in verse 21. The people took some of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen. So he, he does that. He shifts the blame onto the people and he justifies himself. And he has an outward acknowledgement of his sin in verse 24. Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. He acknowledges that. But you can see also that he, in his acknowledgement of his sin, there's no fear of God. Instead, he's fearing man. Uh, because he says in verse 24, I feared the people and I listened to their voice. This is the same Saul that God gave all of this success to. And this is the king. This is the one that God put in position. And he's fearing the people rather than fearing God. And you also see the fake worship that, that Saul provides um, in verses uh, 25 and 30, especially verse 30. Saul says to Samuel, uh, I have sinned, but please honor me now. He wants honor in front of the people of Israel. He wants Israel to honor him. Go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He, he wants Israel to see him worshiping, even though his worship is not genuine. So we see how Saul responds to his sin. Uh, he acknowledges the sin, but he shifts the blame to other people. Uh, he justifies what he did. And uh, he, he has a fear of man rather than a fear of God. And that's helpful for us. When, we're, um, when we fall into sin, we need to observe carefully how it is that we fell into sin. And we need to be honest with the Lord about that. And we need to be honest with the Lord about what it looks like to repent from that sin and what it looks like to worship him going forward. But then we'll see the outcome here and see how costly this was uh, for Saul. And we're still in verse, chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 26 and verse 35. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And the Lord regretted, in verse 35, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So now you have a man who's serving as king, and the Lord had regretted that he made him king. And that was all because of the way Saul responded to his sin. He had opportunities to respond properly to his sin, but he didn't. And God is merciful and forgiving, uh, but Saul did not repent rightly, and he didn't think rightly about his sin. And we see how things end. Uh, if you jump ahead to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, we're going to see how things end for Saul. And at the end of his life, um, Saul and Israel was uh, characterized by lots of hostility and lots of military engagement with the, the nations around them. And more often than not, Israel was on the losing end of those, those battles. And this is a passage that describes how it is that Saul dies. And they're in a battle, and uh, starting in verse 3 of chapter 31. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. So the outcome, you know, at a human level, Saul takes his own life. Saul had, had abandoned a fear of God and he was trusting in his own wisdom. And where that led him at the end of his life was to take his own life. Uh, but from God's perspective, God is, is removing an unfaithful leader to make room for a man who is after his own heart. And uh, that's David. But let's look at a couple of application questions first. Uh, one of them is this. How inclined are we to trust our own assessment when we have experienced recent success? When God gives us success in something, whether it's at work, financial success, we're healthy, Whatever it is, my wife and I bought a house last week that's successful. When God gives us success, how likely are we to trust in our own assessment of our circumstances? 
and how likely or, or uh, how important is it for us to, to trust God's assessment of us and lean on God's instruction to us. Second question is, um, what evidence can we point to that indicates that our greatest fear is for God and not for man? What are the earmarks that show that we actually do fear God? And the answer to that is we're reading God's word. We're reading God's word and we're informing ourselves about God's character. God's character. So that's a little bit about Saul. He started well, he compromised, his repentance was poor, and it ended very, very badly for him. So then we'll go to David, and we're going to look at the start here. And uh, we know this, this is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is the story of David and Goliath. And uh, the Philistines are there, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into the middle of the conversation that David is having with Goliath in verse 46. Uh, Saul has given David his armor. David decided the armor wasn't going to work for him. David gets five smooth stones in his sling and his staff, and he goes into battle with uh, probably the most highly trained, strongest killer in the world at that time. And this is what David says to that killer. He says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David has absolute confidence in God's power and ability to defend his own reputation, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. There are no gods in the other nations. There is a God. There is the God in Israel. And David is pleased to be God's representative. He's pleased to be used by God. So he's off to a very good start. And it's important for us to understand that, that um, prior to this in chapter 16, uh, David had been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. So he knows he's going to be the king. He's not sure when that is, but what he's doing here is he's being obedient. And so what we're going to look at here is the warning. And we think back to Deuteronomy 17, 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Notice what God is saying here. His heart will turn away. This language emphasizes the turning away of the king's heart. And this is distinct from the command not to intermarry. The point here is that as the wives increase, the king's attention is drawn to all those wives and away from his own nearness to the Lord. As you add a wife, you've just got all the management that comes with it. You add another wife, there's management that comes with that. There's probably difficulty between the wives and the concubines and all of that. So what we're going to do here is we're going to see the, the compromise of David. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we know this story very well. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. And it's important for us to understand that at this time, this is taking place in Jerusalem. David had a 40-year reign as king. In the first seven of those years, he was, he was reigning from Hebron. In the last 33 years, he was reigning from Jerusalem. But when he was in Hebron, he had seven children by seven different women. So here's the compromise. David already has lots of kids by lots of different women. And um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of 2 Samuel 11. And it happened in the spring of the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sum of the Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Um, so if you look at the Second uh, Samuel chapter 3, you will find out there's a listing of all of the, the women that David had children by while he was king in Hebron. And again, there was seven of them. And here is David pursuing yet another woman. And so David's heart was already distracted from what he was supposed to be doing. If you look at the beginning of the, the passage I just read, in verse 1, at the time when the kings go out in battle, David sent Joab out. And David was supposed to be out there with him. He was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was standing on the roof. And he's looking around. So he's already distracted his heart is turned away from what God had him to be doing. 
So when your heart is turned away, sin is not going to be far off. And it was only a matter of time because of his weak condition that he fell into sin. Let's take a look at David's response to sin. What we're going to see here is the first response, and then we're going to see the second response. And the first response does not go well. Uh, Chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 8 and 10 and 14 and 15. This is what David does. David tries to take issues into his own hands. He tries to lean on his own wisdom. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, in verse 14, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter, saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. This is David's first response. His response is to try to cover things over. Multiple attempts to try to put Uriah in bed with his wife. Again and again, David tries to do that. He was not successful. This was not unlike Adam and Eve in the garden. We all know the story. David effectively murders Uriah, commanding the army to withdraw from Uriah in the place where the fighting is the most severe and fierce. And so some time passes, David marries Bathsheba, and she has a son. And then, so David's first response was a really poor response. He tries to resolve the situation in his own wisdom. And now we're going to take a look at uh, Nathan and Nathan's interaction with David in chapter 12. Nathan, the seer, appeals to David's conscience. This is really important for us to see how he does this. He appeals to, to David's conscience by giving him a story that is an analogy of what it is that he's done. And so the story has to do with a traveler, and he comes to stay with a rich man, a man who has great flocks and herds. And the rich man takes the one and only lamb from a poor man, and he uses that to provide for the traveler. So we're going to drop down to um, verse 5. Then So Nathan tells that story to David. David's anger burned greatly against the man. So David is angry at this kind of man when when Nathan gives him this analogy. In verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It's I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So this is his second response. He acknowledges his sin in verse 13. And there's genuine repentance. If you, you go on to verse 16, you can see that uh, he's inquiring of the Lord for the sick child and he's fasting. He knows that he has sinned first and foremost against the Lord. We didn't see that at all with, with uh, Saul. Saul had no concept, of, no understanding that he had sinned against the Lord. And David knows that in his second response. So he writes Psalm 51. Verses 3 and 4, he writes, Be gracious to me, O God. David is casting himself upon God's grace. He knows that he, he, he doesn't deserve anything. He's appealing to God to have unmerited favor towards him. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. David knows that he can't blot his own transgressions out. He knows that the Lord must do it. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He knows it. He knows what he's done. He knows God sees it. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So he appeals for grace. He's aware that his sin has put him in a position where he merits no favor with God. And he's aware that the true offense is against God. So this is important for us to understand when we fall into sin. It's important for us to be able to recognize, first and foremost, our sin is against God because we're elevating our own assessment and our own thoughts against over and above those of God. It's helpful for us to think that. And then let's take a look at the outcome of David's life. We're going to see how David's life ends. And for that, we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And here we see David um, setting up the next king. 
Uh, Saul didn't have the privilege of doing this. Saul just ended very badly. He just took his own life. We're going to see how things end for David. Verse 1, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon and his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep a charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinance, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David is thinking rightly here. He is saying, this is God's design. God's design is that there would be a king in perpetuity on the throne in Israel. Israel would have a king, and from that kingly line would come a Messiah, the one that would save. David knows all of this, and so he's encouraging Solomon rightly with all of this. He's saying, this is God's design. You need to embrace God's design. So at the very end of his life, David is very familiar. He's very convinced of God's purposes. And he's thinking rightly as he's passing on instructions to the next king, his son Solomon. So it ends really well for David. And the reason why it ended well is because David's second response to his sin. He understood first and foremost that his sin was against God. So that's David. And then we're going to take a look at Solomon. We're going to take a look at the start for Solomon. And we're going to take a look at the warning and all of the rest. And we're going to see how Solomon uh, handles success in his life. So when Solomon became king, he was very young. And we're going to look at chapter 3 of 1 Kings. We're going to look at verses 7 and 9, and then 11 through 13. So the, the lead up to this is that God had, had told Solomon, he had asked Solomon, ask whatever you wish and I will give it to you. So in verse 7, Solomon says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in Israel of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Verse 9. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Verse 11. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. He already did it. He already gave it to him. I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall one like you arise after you. Verse 13. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. Uh, the rest of the world is going to be pretty impressed with Solomon and his splendor and his majesty. So now we're going to look at the warning. So, but what we see here is that Solomon is starting very, very well. He understands himself in, in verse 7. I'm a child. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to lead this great people of yours. He knows that Israel is a great nation. He knows that they have a great task, and that is to, to demonstrate and give the rest of the world around them a picture of who God is. So he's thinking really, really well. He asks for wisdom instead of money and military might. We're going to take a look at the warning now. Uh, Numbers 33. I just want us to see this. Um, well, the point of what I'm going to show you from Numbers 33 is that idols are already in uh, the land of Israel when Israel got there. Numbers 33, verses 50 and 52. This is Moses, and they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, verse 52, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. So there were already idols in the promised land when Israel got there. And they were already there, and the Lord knew the effect that these idols would have on Israel to draw their affections away from him, to draw their attention away from him. Uh, we need to remember the other warning from Deuteronomy 17, where we started this morning. Uh, he shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall um, 
not multiply wives for himself, nor he shall greatly, shall he not greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So don't accumulate horses, don't accumulate um, wives, and don't accumulate silver and gold. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to focus on the horses and the silver and gold. Horses were an advantage in the battlefield. If you had a lot of horses, uh, you had advantage in battle. And vast numbers of horses will lead a king to put his confidence in his own strength rather than in the Lord's deliverance. Time and time and time again, when you look at uh, what Israel does, you see God delivering Israel, not out of Israel's might. Silver and gold was often obtained in the form of tribute from the other nations that they would suppress, leading him again to trust in his own financial position rather than in God as their provider. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1-4 through four. Be strong therefore and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, commands, ordinances, his testimonies, to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke to me. This is David's words to Solomon. So this is the warning. Don't accumulate wives for yourself. Don't accumulate riches for yourself. Obey everything that the Lord gave you. And we're going to see the compromise for Solomon. And I think we know this. We're, we're not sharing something we don't know here. Uh, but the compromise in 1 Kings 3, verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, watching, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So there's syncretism here. Solomon loves the Lord, but he brings other forms of worship, worshiping other gods, other deities than the God of Israel. And Solomon was sharing his affections that God intended to be solely for the Lord. He was sharing those affections with other gods. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump down to 1 Kings chapter 10. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 10. And we'll get a look at what it is that Solomon is doing. Um, this is what Solomon is acquiring for himself during his reign. We'll look at 1 Kings 10 verses 14 and 15. Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, an exorbitant amount of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, Solomon was willing to jeopardize his trust in the Lord with a confidence in his own wealth. And there are a number of means for us as we think about applications to pursue financial gain, higher paying job, better investments, and things like that. These things aren't sinful in and of themselves. They're not. Um, but how careful must we be when considering the opportunities in these areas? We need to go the extra mile to assess our heart and make sure our confidence is in the Lord, not in the other things. Verse Kings chapter 10, verse 26. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And he stationed them in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. This is a, a similar situation as his accumulation of wealth. He's accumulating all of these horses. Chariots and soldiers provide the king of Israel an opportunity to, to trust in something other than the Lord. And that is exactly what is happening. Solomon is trusting in himself and not in the Lord. Let me go down to chapter 11. Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. He loved many foreign women. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them. Verse 3, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. This is the wisest man in the world. He accumulated 700 wives, 300 concubines. And at the very end of this passage, his wives turned his heart away. So he surrounded himself with rows and rows and rows of wives and rows and rows and rows of concubines. And the effect was they turned his heart away. His affections were so devoted to these women that he had no affections for God. And uh, we've seen this in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was what Solomon wrote at the end of his life. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 8, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. In verse 8, he says, Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces, 
I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many, many concubines. So Solomon had compromised by disobeying blatantly all that God asked him to do. God was very clear. God was wise in giving Israel guidelines for how the kings should operate. And Solomon appropriated his own wisdom that God gave him to rule well, and he used that to override God's instructions for him. So what we're going to look at here is Solomon's response to his sin. And scripture doesn't really show Solomon's immediate response to his sin um, right after he committed it. But what we do have are Solomon's reflections at the end of his life on the foolishness of his sin in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, verse 26, Solomon writes, And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. So by the end of his life, Solomon was able to see the result of the true nature of these foreign women. He saw that they drew his heart away from God. Whereas at one point they were beautiful and they were attractive and Solomon decided, I need more wives and someone would go out and pick up another 250 wives for him. Um, why that seems so attractive on the front end, he comes to see what they really are. They're snares and nets, constraints that rob a man of his affections for God. At the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, The conclusion when all has been heard is this, Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So Solomon had no fear of God when he was accumulating all of his wives. He had absolutely no fear of God. But by the end of his life, uh, he had a sobriety that enabled him to see God's judging and avenging character. And we'll see the outcome. This is pretty sobering. The outcome is, is pretty significant for us. Um, in 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, verses 11 through 14, so the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, accumulated all the wives, all the horses, all the gold, and not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Verse 14. Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. Then drop down to verse 40. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Jeroboam is the first king in the northern kingdom after Israel split into the northern and southern kingdom. And so at the end of Solomon's life, you have the man who is going to be the king running off to Egypt for protection, and he's waiting until Solomon dies. 1 Kings chapter 12 we look at verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look at your own house, David. It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. So we need to get this. This is really important for us. Uh, Solomon's desire for multiple women and the foreign gods they led him to worship had implications far beyond his lifetime. Solomon could not have possibly seen what was coming until God told him what would happen. And God took the nation that was supposed to be a testimony to all of the people around, all the nations around them, so that they could come to understand who God was. And God divided that nation. And in the years following, there were, there were disputes and wars and battles between the northern and the southern kingdom, on and on. So what they had done was they had ruined their opportunity and the privilege of sharing God with all of the nations around them. They had ruined it because of Solomon's disobedience. So his desire for multiple wives was at the heart of the division of Israel into the northern and the southern kingdoms. And Solomon's sin affected the generations that come after him. So what I want to do is just share several lessons from Israel's kings. The one is that we need to be wary of pride. 
of our pride in seasons of success. We need to be wary of the deceitfulness of our own heart. Sometimes it's, it's hard for us to see that our heart is deceiving us. We need to counsel ourselves away from justifying sin. It's so easy to justify your sin or to explain it away or try to make some caveat by which it's okay to sin. We need to counsel ourselves away from that. Call it what God calls it and agree with it the way God agrees with it. Another one, this is uh, primarily from the life of Saul, but don't confuse external repentance with biblical repentance. If you want an understanding of what biblical repentance looks like, turn to your New Testament, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, read verses 10, 11, and 12, and you see that God talks about a godly sorrow and an earnest man who is gripped by a fear for the Lord, earnestly wants to vindicate himself. Um, Another is, look for the way of escape when faced with a situation in which you have demonstrated weakness. David was walking around on the roof. He was supposed to be doing something else. Ask yourself, Lord, where is the way of escape here? And the way of escape is, read your Bible. And remember what your Bible says and, and fear God. When faced with sin, remind yourself that the one who thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. Sin never satisfies. Um, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 6, um, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be filled and satisfied. And lastly, we need to remember that we cannot conceal anything from God. And David tried to solve his own problem himself and make the problem go away with Uriah. Uh, we can't hide anything from God. God brought Nathan to David and said, you're the man. So those things are things that are helpful for us. Hopefully those are helpful to you. Uh, when looking at seasons of success, when looking at when we fall into sin, how to repent from that sin. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these men. Thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your kindness to them. Oh, Lord, I pray for them that they would be men who do receive blessing from you, Lord. Uh, that all of us, Lord, we would be humble as you apportion much to us. Lord, and whatever it is that you give us, that we would be men who are humble with what you give to us, that we would always fear you, we would obey you, we would never justify our sin. Lord, help us to walk in holiness of life. I pray for our men as we enter into discussion groups. Lord, I pray that you would cause this time of sharing to be rich and sweet, a time when the men truly grow together. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen.